you know, and I've heard it from victims of, of, of sex offenders, you know, not knowing where someone is really, you know, preys on, on their mind. It's very upsetting to think that someone who may have attacked you, you know, he may have come back to your hometown. You don't know. You don't know if you're going to do your Christmas shopping in city centre Dublin. Are you going to run into him? You know, the person who, who ruined your life or, or certainly put you through a terrible trauma. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. New legislation which introduces tagging of sex offenders will now deal with the complex issues of releasing rapists and child abusers back to the communities. But does the newly passed Sex Offenders Amendment Bill go far enough when it comes to protecting the public from dangerous predators? Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the new laws and what they mean for those completing their sentences. We also look at some of the heinous crimes of the 120 sex offenders who will be released from prison by the end of this year. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, the Sex Offenders Amendment Bill, um, it has been passed now by government and has been brought in. So what does it actually mean? I think, Nicola, the kind of the headline element of the, the new legislation coming in is this idea that sex offenders will be electronically tagged. Um, like this is something that we're pretty far behind compared to most other Western European countries who regularly, you know, uh, put electronic bracelets on people who are, you know, done for their second offence for, for, for driving without insurance and, you know, often very basic things just to make sure that they stay within the, you know, the, 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 uh, the conditions of their bail. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be kind of a one size fits all. Um, in, and also, I would be a little bit concerned about what electronic tagging really means. Does that mean they're going to give them a phone um, and that they have to answer it when they ring them, you know, once every three days? Or will it be, you know, a GPS um, tracking device where you can see if somebody is going somewhere where they shouldn't be, like, you know, the middle of Dublin city centre at two in the morning or four o'clock when the schools are coming out? Uh, and so, I mean, you know, the devil's going to be in the detail in that. I mean, I mean, there are, as it stands under the, the, the sex offender um, legislation, there are, you know, severe penalties. I mean, well, you, you can get up to five years for failing to register as a sex offender. And presumably then, you know, um, bre- breaching of those conditions, you, you know, could theoretically, you know, put you back in back in prison for up to five years, I suppose, depending on the circumstances. But the point is, all these things need to be monitored um, and they need somebody to go and check. And, and at the moment, like the probation service, you know, supervise something like 400 plus current sex offenders, you know, in the community who've already been released. So it depends who's going to do that. Under, under the kind of the, the, the stuff that was published earlier this month by um, Helen McEntee suggests then that, you know, the probation service, the Gardaí and Tusla are all going to work together to monitor sex offenders. But again, as I said, it's it's you know one size doesn't fit all in that you have you, you know you know people that you know pose stranger danger you know fellas that for them getting drunk or not getting drunk and hiding out in a park and trying to attack a female jogger at you know two in the afternoon, and then you have people say who you know are, are much more subtle they'll they'll prey on on vulnerable women so they can get at their children but it's all done inside of their own homes. And then you've people that, you know, despite, 
I know some people feel very strongly about it, but you do have some people then that would be considered at the lower end of sex offenders, people who have looked at, um, you, you know, uh, images of child sexu- sexual abuse. I mean, they're, they're, while those images are evidence of, of an offence, sometimes those people involved are merely just looking at, you know, images that have been out there possibly for years at this stage. And sometimes it happens at a point in their life it's linked, you know, you hear all the mitigation that it's linked in with, you know, certain emotional torment. And I suppose some of these guys, you know, will never will never do it again. And what's the point of electronically tagging someone unless you're actually looking at what he's doing on his laptop or if he's heading off to the Philippines or the Th- or Thailand, you know, to, to get access to vulnerable kids. So, so I mean, I think the devil's in the detail and how it's going to work is is depending on how it's going to be implemented, you know, whether there's going to be, you know, specially trained guards, specially trained probation officers, you know, officials from Tusla, which, t- to be honest with you, as we know, it'll be hit and miss. In some areas, it'll work perfectly, and in some areas, it won't work at all. And then in most areas, it'll be somewhere in between. But, I mean, it, you know, to, to use that horrible phrase, something has to be done, like, in a sense that, you know, all these guys are coming out at, at the minute. And, you know, and I've heard it, I'm sure you've heard it from victims of, of, of sex offenders, you know, not knowing where someone is really, you know, preys on, on their mind. And it, it's, it's very upsetting to think that someone who may have attacked you, you know, he may have come back to your hometown. You don't know. He might be living, he could be living in a different country, but you don't know if he's going to turn up. Um, you don't know if you're going to do your Christmas shopping in city centre Dublin, are you going to run into him? Or if you go into Cork city centre for whatever, that you're not going to run into the, the you know, the person who, who ruined your life or, or certainly put you through a terrible trauma. So in that sense, at the very least, if it gives reassurance to victims, then it's definitely worth doing. But it's interesting, those scenarios that you laid out about, you know, the idea of a predator in a park waiting to hop on a a jogger going by or somebody who is targeting vulnerable children through through a parent and all the rest of that. And in all those cases, it seems to me that the electronic tagging would only really be useful after a, a crime if one happened, that you could then obviously link through GPS that the individual, the sex offender, was in that area or could have been there, which might be useful to form part of a prosecution case. But it's obviously not really stopping anything. Um, I always had this idea in my head that those uh, those tags would be great for sex offenders, that we'd know where they were at all times and there'd be somebody sitting on a computer watching them move around and this kind of thing. But realistically, when you think of them, they really are probably most useful if a, another crime has been committed. Um, is there something in the legislation which will allow Gardaí disclose information to the public or to journalists about where an individual is? I mean, you've been working on these stories for years, but um, you obviously protect your sources and all the rest of it. But, uh, you know, you're not being given any of this information, shall we say, officially? No, absolutely not. Um and I mean, if you look at like what I've read of the the, sec, the the published version of the new Sex Offenders Act, like it's, it suggests that the guards have, you know, should have the power to uh, to notify people, but it's only in extenuating circumstances. So that's presumably if you have one of those situations where I described a sex offender has inveigled his way into the home of a vulnerable person and, you know, and everybody in that house is now at risk that the guards, you know, would 
probably consider that an extenuating circumstances and, you know, warn the people in the house that, by the way, you know, the person that has moved in, that's your, your, you know, your father's new boyfriend or your, your mother's new boyfriend or the new lodger or your, your uncle Tim wasn't really in the French Foreign Legion for the last 10 years. And, you know, I, I think in, in those cases, it would be effective and it would work. I don't think you're, I don't think you're going to get, um, you know, a website with every single sex offender and their picture and where they're living. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, it would probably cause more problems than it would solve. Um, I know we, we've all seen the kind of the pedophile hunter groups, you know, who've been online and certainly the police forces in the UK seem to take a slightly different attitude to than to the ones in Ireland. And, and I suppose they do turn up some people, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, potential sex offending, you can argue that it's entrapment the way they do it. But at the same time, you know, you find a lot of the people that they've caught out aren't innocent. So, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of a, it's an area that I think it's, it's, it's difficult because again, you know, it comes back to that, you know, it, it isn't one size fits all when it comes to sex offenders. Some of them, uh, you know, don't necessarily pose a danger to the public at large. If anything, they're probably more a danger to themselves than anybody. And their offending is mostly online and it's passive. And then, of course, at the other end, you have people out trying to strangle somebody unconscious so they can, you know, you know, violently sexually assault them. And, that, and that's that's what they get off on. And they are out there. That That's, and, you know, they're, they're the ones, I guess, to worry about. They're the ones that make the headlines. Um, and, and, and whether or not, you know, the guards are able to release information to somebody will be effective or not, I think will only work in, in some of those cases, in very specific cases. And I, I certainly don't think if, if, for instance, somebody moves into a town that the local principal is necessarily going to be inf- informed, by the way, the guy now living, you know, two streets up from the school has actually just been released from the Midlands prison after serving eight years for abusing his children. Um, he, arguably, he wouldn't necessarily be a danger, you know, to the kids in school walking by with their parents because, one, they're with their parents, and two, they're not his own kids. So, you know, it, it does... It, it kind of it, it, it's a grey area, and it's always going to be, be a grey area. I think I think kind of tagging, you know, I like I, there was one time I actually had a trip over to G4S Security in Manchester where they showed us how their tagging system works, and it was obviously it was a the company were trying to get some um, free publicity about how effective their their operation was and how for fifteen euro a day they could track everybody. Um, but it was interesting to see up front how it worked. Um, you know, like the rubber bands that the tags are, 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 are that the, the that are attached to your to your ankle, like they they have scales on them that kind of embed into your skin. Um, they set that, in, you know, an alarm goes off, you know, silently to the monitoring station. You know, if if you try to cut it, so like ideas that you know, oh, I caught it on a piece of nail, or I caught it on the tap while I was in the bath. Don't wash. And the point then is that it it records all these things that if you've gone out for cigarettes at 10 minutes past your curfew, it doesn't mean that the police are going to turn up at your door and bring you home. It means that there's now evidence that you've been, you know, in breach of your bail and that you've done it five or six times and therefore you need to go back to prison. So, you know, it's it's, it's more subtle than necessarily, you know, an alarm goes off because somebody is suddenly looking at child porn or because they've climbed up a tree near a school but if it shows a pattern of behavior where they're likely to start reoffending, like they're out late at night, they're in a city center or something like that, then, you know, the authorities can take action. And presumably that's, that's, I mean, that's the only way it's going to work. As, you know, as you say, like 
it's not going to be actively monitored, although that can be done, but that's far more expensive. And I know that they've done it in the UK with sort of these kind of, you know, uh, high value or high danger, um, you know, terrorist targets. And they can see, you know, they, they can see like if somebody, for instance, is going past the school, if they're at walking pace or if they're on a bus, you know, things like that. So they're not necessarily in breach of their 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 bail conditions if they're if they're within 100 meters of a, of a school, if they're if they're going by on the local 46A or whatever. Um, so, I mean, there, there is an element where, you know, it can work, but whether it's monitored or not is another question. But it seems to me that bringing technology um, to play here is very sensible because up until now and currently, we're dealing with the situation where we're working on a system of trust with sex offenders who are convicted criminals and, um, you know, who who maybe haven't, exactly got high moral standards and who have a tendency to lie and to, you know, to manipulate. And at the moment, they do have to be on a sex offenders register when they're released from prison and they have to give Gardaí within seven days, I think it is, of moving address. They have to give them the new address. The new legislation will change that to three days. But by and large, we're in a system of trust with untrustworthy people. And if you have a curfew and you slip out for your cigarettes at night, uh, it's only really if you're actually physically caught doing that at the moment that 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 will be will go against your your bail conditions. So, you know, it does seem to make sense. Now, you have been writing about how this year to date and by the end of this year, there'll be 120 uh, sex offenders who have been released from the Midlands and Arbor Hill prisons. So they're the two prisons where sex offenders are are held. And that's in a 12-month period you're talking. So 10, basically a month on average, are being released. So what sort of people are they? I mean, what crimes have they committed and what risk do they pose to the communities? Well, as I, I suppose I've already said a couple of times at this stage, it's it's everything from you know, the one-off child porn um, sex offender to serial sex offenders that have, you know, have killed people. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's every, you know, it's, it's, it's everything from your worst nightmare to, you know, and, and, and in between. Yeah, you've done a bit of a snapshot of a few of them, I think. You've done a bit of a snapshot of maybe 10, for example, that have been released out of that 120 Um and it's a pretty frightening lineup, I have to say, Eamon. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like back in February, we had Ian Horgan come out. Uh, like he's a, a convicted killer, rapist. He 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 initially, I think it was in two thousand, he 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 killed uh, Rachel Kiley, and he was done for her murder. And then on appeal, that was reduced to manslaughter. Now he was a teenager himself at the time of that of that killing. Um, and he would, he came out of jail. You know, he was that was it. Um, he emerged from prison. He got in trouble again. He did some armed robberies, and his his latest sentence was in 2018, where he he, he produced a knife in a in a I think it was a shop or a, or a uh, an off license, uh, and he was he was given eight years with two suspended. So he's out now. Presumably, those two years can be activated. And now he's currently you know he's he's up on in the district courts in Cork on the basis that he's breached his bail conditions at the moment because he failed to tell the guards that he registered on Tinder as Keen Horgan, which he's making the argument that uh, the CIAN was simply a typo and that he wasn't trying to hide his identity. Um, 
Now, he's, he's actually failed to turn up at one of those hearings and a bench warrant was issued there for his arrest in October. I'm not sure if he's been arrested at this stage, but some of those previous court hearings heard that there were other, um, you know, breaches of bail. Some of them were, you know, arguably relatively minor that he was, you know, he was 20 minutes late, um, you know, uh, when he had to sign on to the, his local Garda station in Limerick. And on another occasion, a detective called to his house after 10 o'clock at night and he wasn't there. But, you know, so, I mean... Arguably, these are these are what the electronic tag would have done and saved the detective the trip and saved you know people signing on. But like, but I mean, he's uh, I mean, he spent most of his his life in prison. His convictions for drugs, armed robbery, manslaughter, rape, and he's out and about. And as you know, it's now been alleged he's he's trying to register on Tinder. So, I mean, he's not somebody you know you necessarily want your daughter or your your sister or anyone else to run into. He's still in his mid-30s. No, definitely not. I mean, arranging a, a date with a guy by the name of Kean Horgan and not realising that he's actually Ian Horgan with these very serious convictions, it's kind of a frightening thought. Yeah, and, and, and the worst thing, as I said, he's not alone. I mean, you had Barry Waters came out of prison in August this year. I mean, there's a guy, you know, arguably you could suggest that he was at what I was saying was the low end of, of sex offenders originally, um, you know, he, he was caught looking at um, uh, child porn in his most recent sentence. Like he, he was actually in in a he, he was actually in a, a public Internet cafe using a USB key and looking at images he'd saved on that. But then he seemed to have moved on in terms of his offending. And he also had a sentence then for exposing himself uh, to schoolgirls, you know, basically walking around um and you know, leaving you know, allowing allowing his genitalia to to be seen by the girls, and I think remember Judge Martina Baxter described this as brazen exhibitionism, and that she you know, and he was deliberately targeting vulnerable people. And she, I remember she expressed her concern that you know he'd come out from behind the screen. So you know, there there's somebody who's a prime example whose behaviour needs to be constantly monitored. You know, and. And to some extent, you, you can sound like, you know, the ultimate bleeding heart liberal, that it might be a simple thing of him having a counsellor that he talks to once a week so that when he's getting in a state of stress or the madness that, you know, takes over where he feels the need to, you know, walk around with his trousers off like in front of schoolgirls, that, you know, an intervention happens before he does that. Or that, you know, he, if he... I mean, by the looks of it, if he's gone from, as the judge said, from behind the screen, I mean, what would be next if he hadn't been stopped? You know, and if he's left completely unsupervised and if there's no one there to, I don't know, guide him or keep him, you know, between the rails, you know, a far worse crime could happen. And, you know, even sometimes when we read about this in court, when it's a small thing, you know, it can be a relatively small thing. Somebody hasn't suffered any great physical damage. But for a nine or a 10 year old or, or a 12 year old or even someone older, to have something like that is extremely frightening and can be extremely disturbing. And while some individuals may be able to, you know, brush it off and continue with their lives and even joke about it in a couple of years, there's other people that leaves them with a deep-seated insecurity. It can lead to their own anxiety and, you know, depression problems. So, you know, no more than the offenders, one size doesn't fit all. It's the same with the victims as well. And that, like, even what we might see as relatively minor crimes can kind of have a deep impact. So, I mean, you know, for, for guys like, you know, Horgan and, and Barry Waters, you know, who are arguably at, you know, pretty different ends of the spectrum, 
you know, the damage that they, they can do and have done, you know, is, is significant in terms of the victims. I mean, like, I know he wasn't, like, a good example, and the, the piece I wrote about it recently in, in, in the Sunday World about all the sex offenders who've come out, like, I actually led off with Robert Melia, um, partly because yeah, one of his, one of the people who survived an attack by him, Debbie Cole, has been quite vocal in calling for, you know, the sex offenders bill um, and, in, in, you know, in calling for public, public um, or in calling for electronic tagging. And I remember the day he actually came out of prison, like he, he, he just stood out very casually. He, he was smoking a cigarette. There was two women had turned up, you know, who were obviously arriving at the prison for the first time. I don't know whether they were visitors or, you know, going in to see an inmate or whatever. And he stopped and chatted to them. And these two women had no idea who, who they were dealing with. And then eventually, I think he realized that his taxi wasn't coming and he decided to go off and get the train. So here we have this guy who has broken into houses, you know, who, who's a violent rapist, like, you know, who imprisoned women, you know, his victims thought they were going to die. I mean, he's, he's been in jail a number of times. You know, you, you know he, this guy is a serial sex offender. He's dangerous. He's one of the stranger dangers, you know, that we're talking about. He's at the upper end. And the idea then that he was getting on a, you know, public transport to head off into the unknown. And, you know, it's something that Debbie Cole has spoken about, you know, not really knowing where he is. I mean, she's relying on an effective guard liaison officer, you know, to tell her, you know, don't worry, we know where he is at the minute. He's up in North County Meath or he's in Wexford or wherever. You needn't worry. But you know, if you don't have that, then, you know, for someone like Debbie Cole, it's always on their mind. It's something they have to worry about. Melia would be a prime candidate for a tag in, and, and you'd put it on in the hopes that, first of all, you can track him um, and should anything occur in an area he's in, but also that it might, you know, serve as something to make him think twice, perhaps, although he does sound as if he's, uh, um, you know, as if he's an opportunist as well as everything else. But at the same time, you'd like to think that these tags would make these offenders think twice. Do I really want to go back into jail again? Do I want to really go back into the system? Am I going to get away with it? So, you know, they do serve serve that as well. Walter Morrissey is somebody that uh, you've been writing about. Another very concerning, very violent individual um, that perhaps some of this legislation would uh, help to monitor him going forward. Yeah, I think Walter Morrissey is probably one of those prime examples where I think an electronic tag, I don't think it would make a difference in that, you know, he, he's not a, he doesn't appear to be, you know, a, a, you know, a drug user or, or to abuse alcohol. He's, you know, dapper, well-dressed, very plausible man in his late 70s who's well able to talk. And, and his, I suppose, modus operandi over the years has been, you know, inviting and encouraging relationships with vulnerable women who, you know, spend time in his house and, and they're the people that he's attacked. And I mean, it was a particularly nasty, um, he served, like, it's a particularly nasty attack for which he served his most recent um, sentence. He did eight years, uh, it was a 2013 conviction, I think, where he, he's, and uh, you better do a bit of uh, listener discretion here because, like, I, I won't go into the exact details of what he did, but basically he used implements um in, in, in one case to rape a woman and the one he did for, for his most recent sentence, he used his fist and in, in which uh, a doctor gave evidence that he likened the victim's injuries to being raped with a machete. I mean, it, it was, and luckily enough, when that woman went into hospital, a nurse was on duty in St. Luke's in Kilkenny who had remembered uh, 
injuries suffered by a woman called Lorraine White, mm. who had suffered similar injuries, injuries. And she alerted the guards. She had seen Walter Morrissey in the hospital. And of course, Lorraine White had been a partner of Walter Morrissey. And she died from her injuries. But before she died, she told medics it was an accident. Um, she had been in the shower washing herself. It was a homemade shower head, I think. Um, but basically, it, it was a 12-inch piece of copper piping that had been inserted to her. And she basically, she basically bled to death from the injuries. So now he was arrested and questioned over that, but he was never charged. Mm. Um, although in the UK in 1999, he was also convicted and served time for um, sexually assaulting a woman using implements. Now, he came out of prison in October, um, you know, and got a taxi straight home all the way to Callan from Port Leash. You know, we doorstepped him. He invited me down. Like, he was ready to re-litigate his whole case as, you know, he sees himself as a total victim that, you know, he has, he has, you know, he's the victim in the whole thing. He has this whole kind of uh, conspiracy theory that the, that the woman he attacked, you know, you know, was put up to it by a drug dealer, that it was all part of a plot so they could, you know, steal everything from his house. Yeah, I, and there's just, there's no getting away. You know, he's never, mm-hmm. he's never expressed any remorse. He's never admitted, you know, his role in what he did. Uh, and he's just, you know, he's, he's incredibly dangerous because he, you know, he, he's, he's plausible. Uh-huh. Like he's one of these guys that if somebody doesn't know who Walter Morrissey is or doesn't Google his name, you know, they're, they're going to find themselves, you know, talking to this, you know, you know, he, he's comfortably financially, he's well-dressed, he's well-spoken, and he, he's got a couple of houses, you know, he's, he's, he's not a guy, you know, he, he's a bit of a catch, I guess, nearly, you yeah. know, for, for some people. So, I mean, and, and these guys, it's what they do. They look out for people that they can exploit. Now, does he have to sign on, Eamon, or anything like that? What's the situation with him? Does he just have to give his address? No, he's he's a registered sex offender, um, and you know he, he would be he would be reminded on a, you know a regular basis by I think the the probation service that you know he has to you know abide by the rules. But I mean, at the moment, that means given a seven day notice mm. um, before he travels anywhere or changes addresses. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's committing any offence if somebody moves into his house with him mm. or you know or whatever address that he's given to the guards. You know, he has a lot of connections in the UK as well. He has property in Wigan. That's where, I, I, you know, that's where he, his former partner, Lorraine White, was from. Uh, you know, again, he's entitled to go there. He's entitled to head back, you know, to head over there, to live there, and, you know, inform the police in the UK that he's a sex offender. Now, whether they'll, you know, how dangerous they'll consider him, they might necessarily have all the details. They'll have him as a sex offender from 1999, but not necessarily from... 2013 in Ireland. So, you know, and that, that was actually one of the things that's interesting because the traffic worked both both ways. And, and one of the things in the new legislation is that the guards will be given the power to take um, fingerprints and palm prints of people to ascertain their ID. Because I think there is concern that there have been sex offenders from the UK who've used, you know, you know used the, the common travel area and then changed the name by dude pole to, you know, come to Ireland and set up a new life having basically left their you know, they're sort of passed behind them in the UK and hopefully that, you know, people will have forgotten about them. So, uh, you know, that that's, you know, that's no harm either that, you know, the guards then will have the power to, you know, to take, you know, to take these biometrics from people to ensure that they are who they say they are and they're not, not somebody who's actually, 
escaping the sex offenders register in another country. I remember sitting up in the courts and rooting through these books, uh, having been told that a certain Michael Bambrick, a convicted um, murderer, had been released from prison and changed his name by deed poll. I didn't believe it till I found the document. I just cannot understand how convicted criminals who are, you know, either convicted of serious sex offences or murders can actually change their names because, um, okay, they've served their sentence and we we all believe in, in the ability of a human being to change and all that, but I just think it's a bit of a red flag for me. I know, it's people trying to hide from, from their past and I'm sure some of them will be hitting up the Google right to forget after a couple of years saying, look, it's all behind me now. I'm not a danger to women anymore. And you know, I don't know what Google's policy is on that. I mean, like we, we won't know. Like, I mean, until we get, certainly in our case, you know, I suppose our website is only back up and running two years. So we'll have to wait and see what kind of um, applications, notifications yeah. we get from Google and get an idea about who's trying to, you know, to, to you know, escape what they've done. And, you know, I mean, I know you have said it's a public service to some extent to be naming and photographing some of these kind of dangerous sex offenders coming in. But in a way, it shouldn't be up to the likes of the Sunday World or you or me to, to you know, to publish this sort of thing. And, you know, it's just it's just it is actually crazy to think that, you know, these these guys are out and about. And, you know, the vast majority of people have no idea who, who's walking among them. Like, sorry, there was one figure there I forgot to mention earlier on. There's 1,700 people currently subject to the reporting restrictions. Um, they're people who are under the under the current Sex Offenders Act, you know, have to report to the guards, who have to let them know if they're changing address. And then I think earlier this month, I mean, I think I mentioned, or you mentioned there that in the piece I'd written that there was another 20 due out this year, but there's actually 433 sex offenders in custody, according to the Department of Justice, who will have to register as sex offenders when, when they come out. So, that, so quick maths, that's, you know, 2,100 sex offenders, not including, I think there was five or six people they'd done for sex offences in, in the Dublin Circuit Criminal Court yesterday. So they're not in those figures either. So, I mean, look, I mean, it's a problem that I think the authorities need to get on top of them. It sounds to me like there's a hell of a lot of cooperation needed between the guards and Tusla and the various other services. And, you know, unfortunately, as we hear time and time again, these agencies aren't really communicating very well or working well together and, there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape there that um, can often get in the way. But uh, I suppose, Eamon, we can at least say we're going in the right direction. And, um, you know, this new legislation at least has been signed in and is likely to come into play, I imagine, next year. So the <clears throat> hundreds or so that are released next year may be subject to some some new and stricter conditions. Well, I hope so. And I mean, and it's a matter of whether it's, a, you know, a PR exercise in terms of putting some legislation on the books and then saying, look, we've done all we can. It's up to the guards or it's up to the up to Tusla. Like unless there's kind of adequate resources and training for all the agencies involved, it's not going to make a difference whether it's three days or seven days where somebody, you know, you know, notifies the guards for moving or, you know, if electronic, if you know, electronic monitoring actually means, you know, um, you know, bracelets that can that can be tracked or whether it means you know it's just a mobile phone that has to be answered when it's when it's phoned so we, we have to wait and see exactly what's going to happen and how it's implemented and how it's executed by the agencies involved Eamon Dillon thank you very much thank you Nicola
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.